On Wednesday, Time Magazine announced what everybody already knew. Donald Trump was their person of the year. The left, of course, had a field day comparing Trump to 1938 Time Man of the Year Adolf Hitler. To be fair, the right made some of those same comparisons when Barack Obama was Time Person of the Year in 2012. But there's something rather telling about the media in comparing and contrasting their 2016 and 2012 and 2008 People of the Year. So here is what the 2008 cover looked like, right? There's Barack Obama in all of his shining magisterial glory. Here is the 2012 cover from Time. There's Barack Obama gazing into history somberly. And then there is Trump on the cover of Time this year, right? Kind of gazing over his shoulder uh, in what looks to be a other mafia chair. Now, first of all, let's look at the art. So that 2008 Obama image poster is very clearly a mirror of the Hope poster, right? Let's see the let's see the Hope poster if we can grab that, right? Upward, looking from Obama, gazing into history, beacon of change and light. All of the the half colors uh, going on. That's that's obviously what that is a shout out to. The 2012 Obama image. That is a mirror of this famous JFK portrait that shows him contemplating his own place in history. So here's the JFK portrait. You can see him kind of looking down, and half of his face is in shadow. And then here's the one from Obama 2012, if we can grab that uh, again. Uh, that's, you can see it's very clearly meant to mirror the, that, with, including, the, including the shadowy kind of face. In 2016, the Trump image mirrors the chiaroscuro of the Godfather, right? It looks like that, right? Let's look at the Trump cover again, and then there's the Godfather, Right? Very clearly, that's what they're attempting to do. The media are already attempting to tell their story. Obama was a wonderful, deep, shimmering image of joy, a historic figure. Trump is a gangster. But even more clearly, time is attempting to suggest that Trump is somehow indicative of a divide of an America that didn't exist when Obama was on the ballot. In 2012, you'll notice, they simply labeled Obama president. Trump, however, is president of the divided states of America, as you can see. How do we get divided? Presumably, according to time, that's due to Trump or at least because of his supporters. Now, does anyone believe that if 80,000 votes in the swing states had gone the other way and Hillary had been on the cover, Time would have labeled her president of the divided states? Of course not. All of which shows why Trump regularly slapped the media and why it worked. Most Americans know the country was not a paradisical place of whimsy and unity under Barack Obama. We've been divided for at least a decade, and Obama exacerbated that divide. Trump didn't spring out of the ground like a demon. He's the product of a divided America Obama helped make happen. But the media continue to purvey the lie that only Republicans divide the country. No wonder nobody trusts them. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Alrighty, so much to get to on today's Ben Shapiro Show. Ooh, I'm so excited to be back, and it feels so good. It's good to be back in a studio where we're not, you know, flanked by weird curtains from the Holiday Inn Express, um, but it, it's good to be back in a normal studio with a normal microphone and all of our capabilities brought to bear. So today's show must therefore be unbelievably spectacular. But before we get to all of the magic and wonder of today's show, and there's plenty of magic and wonder yet to come, we need to give a shout out to one of our great partners, one of our great advertising partners. This, of course, is Texture.com. So if you're somebody who's addicted to reading, I am addicted to reading. Uh, I, I finally realized the other day that I am actually addicted to new information, which is why I'm constantly scrolling through my phone for new information and news. Uh, Texture is the place to be if you are just an incessant reader and you need more reading available to you. What Texture does is they, they take, for, for one subscription fee, they aggregate all of the articles from 200 different magazines, and you get access to all of them. If you sign up right now, it's normally $9.99 a month. If you sign up right now at texture.com slash Ben, you get a 14-day free trial so you can try it out before you buy. And instead of subscribing to a couple of magazines that arrive on your doorstep, now you can have all of them, all of them on your smartphone or on your tablet all the time for way less. I mean, it costs... You know, it'll cost you $60, $70 for a subscription one of these things. You can basically pay that 
a little bit more than that, and you got two hundred of these of these of these magazines. And the, and the list of magazines that they they include in Texture really top magazines. I mean, it's like People and Sports Illustrated and Reader's Digest and and Entertainment Weekly and even the ones that that pump fake fake rape stories like Rolling Stone. There are plenty of of great magazines that you can ESPN the magazine if you're a sports fan. A lot of really good magazines here. And more importantly, you don't actually have to subscribe to the individual magazines and then you're ticked that two-thirds of the magazine is stuff you don't want. You can browse all the articles. They archive everything. So Texture.com, really great stuff. Texture.com slash Ben. Normally $9.99 a month. You get the first two weeks free when you go to texture.com slash Ben. Really a great service that we're excited to associate with. Okay, so I want to begin with just, it's, it's been a very weird kind of experience being somebody who didn't vote for either of these candidates because I get to take part in the celebration that Hillary Clinton was not elected. At the same time, I have some trepidation, obviously, about Trump being president. We're going to get to all of that in a second. But I'm definitely, I, I do have to laugh when I see these just overdramatic, insane responses by the left. They can't act like adults. They have to act like sm- uh, like spoiled, whining children about the fact that their candidate didn't win. And it's pretty delicious. So Valerie Jarrett's a perfect example of this. Valerie Jarrett was supposedly Obama's brain. She was kind of his right-hand woman. And uh, and she said that this this... This was basically a gut punch, this election. We were surprised by the outcome of the election, and it kind of, you know, was a, like a, I don't, I'm not sure what the right analogy would be, but like a punch in the stomach, let's say. Soul crushing might be another description. Um, <laughs> but that's the democracy that we have. The people get to decide, and the elections matter. She looks and, like she's going to cry um, right now. We have to get about the business of doing our job. Uh, Valerie Jarrett, the architect of so much terrible policy, uh, feeling the, the gut punch of having all of those policies rejected and many of them wiped away. That is absolutely delicious. I love that soul crushing. It's just that, that there's, a, there's a wonderful ring to that. There's a wonderful ring to that. Um, and then there's this article from New York Magazine. And I love New York Magazine because it's got some actually good content on rare occasions. And then it's got stuff like this, this taking very seriously the insanity of the left. So here is the article. The Post-Trump Haircut by Heidi Mitchell. For the past 20 years, Juliana Evans, the director of marketing for The Lumberyard, a contemporary performing arts company based in New York City, has had the same flowing brown locks. Her stylist in her hometown of Washington, D.C. has been trimming her hair every 12 months for as long as she can remember and always colors it the same medium brown shade. Then came the November 8th election upset. And Evans fell into a downward spiral. I cried for three days, the Atlanta native 45 recalls, which is, by the way, insane. If you cried for three days over an election result, you're a crazy person. I remember in 2004, when I thought Bush was going to lose, I went and I bought Mozart's Requiem. And I figured, okay, that would be my my kind of wallowing in the, in the depression. And then when it was over, I'd go out and live my life three days. And I felt like it was the worst thing politically that ever happened in my lifetime. Really, the worst thing politically that ever happened in your entire lifetime? You're 45. Like, a lot of bad stuff has happened in your entire lifetime. I mean, that goes all the way back to, like, 1961. So that's So that means that... Or, or at least to 1971. So you've watched like American cities burn down. You've watched race riots. You've watched, in the last few years. You've watched race riots. You've watched terrorist attacks. I mean, you've seen a lot of bad stuff in in the United States. And this is the worst thing that happened politically in your lifetime. It was catastrophic. By Friday, she noticed Gray's growing in, so she put on her big girl panties and dragged herself to the drugstore. Yeah, it sounds like she's a real big girl. Literally, without thinking, I grabbed the natural black box by Garnier. She said, I was like, F it. This election deadened my soul. I think I wanted to do something defiant to feel stronger. Again, this goes back to a critique that I had of, uh, of Lindsay way back when. Lindsay, of course, you'll remember, she used to do makeup on the show. She's now back in Texas. And we all miss Lindsay, but Lindsay had a tattoo on her wrist that said Brave. And I said, that's only something that women can get away with, is a tattoo that says Brave. If you're a dude, 
you better have served in Afghanistan to get a tattoo that says brave, and you better have been wounded. Right? For women, it's like, I got out of bed this morning. Brave tattoo, go. So this woman feels very special. She, she had to feel defiant to feel stronger, so she dyed her hair black. She didn't, like, go pump iron or something. She went and she dyed her hair. And it made her feel stronger. Okay, then. So that sense of malaise is spreading across D.C. as women stare up at that glass ceiling still hanging over them and contend with a bleep-grabbing kleptocrat moving into the nearby White House there collectively, however subconsciously, making their own statements of rebellion by challenging traditional notions of beauty. Good idea. Let's just be ugly to challenge Trump. That that sounds awesome. See, whenever people say non-traditional, usually when people say non-traditional, it means really crappy. When they say things like, we're going to have a non-traditional Christmas, it usually means that we're going to throw out all the nice things about Christmas, and then we're going to like an art new, like a, like an art show at the Modern Art Museum and stare at a pair of shoes. Right? When somebody says that they're going to have, they're going to challenge traditional notions of beauty, what they really mean by that is we're going to look all fire ugly. That's the idea. <laughs> traditional standards of beauty. It turns out they're traditional because like people like them typically. And so I, I love this. Just it says when you when you see that much blonde hair on the floor, you know something is going on. Says Nicole Butler. <laughs> creative director and master colorist at Daniel Salon and DuPont Circle. During the notoriously slow month of November, her salon received a startling number of bookings with at least three women a day sitting in her chair asking for a drastic change, like cutting off six inches, going black, or going platinum. Usually stuff like this is planned for weeks and put on the books after several consultations, but this was very spontaneous. First of all, is that true? I mean, Taylor, you do this kind of stuff for a living. Is that true that like, if, if, if someone wants to change their, their hair, they go in for several consultations first? Is that something ladies do? If it's a big change, okay, I guess I guess that's a real thing. Okay, so ladies really take this stuff seriously. Like for a guy, it's like okay, like that's true. So Taylor says you can spend up to two or three hundred dollars. Usually, a guy, it's like for a guy to have a drastic change. Usually, it's like you go in there, the guy starts giving you a bad haircut, and then you're like, continue. It's too late. You buzz me too close, and that's how Jonathan Hay ends up with his current haircut. <laughs> that's 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 usually how this works. <laughs> but, but I love this article. They say clients, especially those over forty, expressed a feeling of loss and uncertainty. Maybe this is some kind of compensation for not getting what we wanted in the election. By changing our hair, we can control the outcome. No, it turns out you can't. It turns out that changing your hair did not control the outcome. This reminds me of this story that was out of, where was this out of? It was Pakistan or India. There's a story recently uh, that a man's wife wouldn't sleep with him for 10 years, so he cut off his willy. And I just thought, that seems like a really poor solution to a pretty, to a pretty big problem. Like that, that's, that's the opposite of what you want to do there, fella. So the, these women, I'm going to chop off my hair to show Trump. Like, Trump gives a crap? Like, anybody sitting around going, oh, my God, look at all these women. They have platinum blonde hair. They're coming for us. No, Trump resign. No, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody really is, is that concerned about a bunch of women dying their hair black. I really don't. Plus, I mean, let's face it, women's hair has been getting significantly uglier over the past few years. I don't know what the hairstylists are saying or why they're doing this, but I know several very good-looking women who have decided for no reason at all to just color their hair like Harley Quinn. And it turns out that that's not nearly as good-looking in real life as it is on the chick who plays Harley Quinn in the movie, mainly because the chick who plays Harley Quinn in the movie is extremely good-looking. Okay, so putting all this aside, the insanity of the left, I want to talk a little bit about about some of the new Trump department picks. So Trump has picked some, some new secretaries, and some of them are quite good. We haven't had a chance to talk about all of them. Secretary of Defense uh, James Mattis uh, is the, the general James Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis. Uh, he's terrific. This is a very good pick. Well, what I really want to talk about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a couple of things next, and, and, you, and this is why you should subscribe so you can see the whole analysis. The big question about Trump, 
we don't know what he's going to be yet. We just don't. We don't know what he's going to be because he's been a Rorschach test the entire time. He has a position on immigration, then he switches the position on immigration. He has a position on the environment, then he invites Leonardo DiCaprio to Trump Tower to talk it over about green jobs. Or he invites Al Gore to talk about about the environment. Or he invites Ivanka Trump to come in and say whatever stupid Democrat thing Ivanka Trump is going to say. I don't care what you say about Trump. Ivanka's a Democrat. But in any case... We don't know what Trump is going to be. So all we can do is try to read the tea leaves that are in front of us or at least make our judgments based on the evidence that are in front of us. So this breaks down into really two categories. Category one is the cabinet picks, which I would say eight out of ten. Very, very solid cabinet picks for for President-elect Trump so far. If he picks somebody good for Secretary of State, that'll raise to a nine out of ten. I think that he's made a lot of very solid cabinet picks, and we'll go through some of those in a minute. So that's you can almost do good Trump, bad Trump this way. His cabinet picks. And then there's what he does and says on Twitter and what he's been doing with these companies, which I think is absolutely abysmal. Um, And who you think Trump is going to be sort of depends. Do you think that Trump is going to be the guy who appoints and delegates? He appoints a bunch of people who who he's going to delegate to, and they're going to take care of business, and he's just going to sit there and reap the rewards for having appointed good people? If you're a good manager, by the way, most of the work is done by your subordinates, and maybe that's Trump. Or... Or is Trump going to be the micromanager who keeps sticking his thumb into the pie because he needs the attention, he wants to get the headline, he needs to be the man in control, like he is on Twitter and as he has been with the economy. And so we're going to go through sort of the two sides of this coin, and we're going to determine which Trump is the real Trump, which is the one that we ought to watch, or should we watch both and then just take it as it comes, which has been my approach thus far. But let's start with the cabinet pick. So this is obviously good Trump, okay? A lot of these these picks are really good. So here is uh, the new pick for Defense Secretary James Mattis. Here's some of the things he's had to say in the past. He's going to Afghanistan, he's got guys who slap women around for five years because they didn't wear a veil. You know, guys like that ain't got no manhood left anyway, so it's a hell of a lot of fun to shoot them. We're up against an enemy that means what they say, and we should not patronize them. Uh, this is a group that deserves no, no support from anyone, and we should try to shut down its recruiting, shut down its finances, and then work uh, to fight battles of annihilation, not attrition, but annihilation against them. So the first time they meet the forces that we put against them, there should be basically no survivors. The enemy gets a vote is the way we put it. You may want a war over, you may declare it over. The enemy may not agree, and you have to deal with that that reality. And that's great. Okay, so James Mattis, very good pick for SecDef. Obviously, this is somebody who takes no prisoners, or if he does, that's only because he failed to shoot them the first time. (laughs) That apparently is sort of the mentality. Great pick for defense. Here are some other great picks that he's made. I think Tom Price at Health and Human Services is going to be a very good pick, somebody who actually knows how Obamacare works and hopefully will help dismantle it. Mike Pompeo at CIA will be very good. I think Jeff Sessions as Attorney General will be a very good pick. Nikki Haley as UN Ambassador, I think, is a pretty decent pick. Now, not all of them are great, right? I think that, obviously, I think Bannon's a bad pick for White House Chief Strategist. I think Mike Flynn is at, at NSA uh, is far too pro-Russian and also very erratic. I think that that's not a very good pick, but, I mean, he, he does know more than certainly the the fiction writer who currently occupies that office, uh, Ben Rhodes, who literally wrote fiction, and then Obama made him national security advisor because, I don't know, he liked his unpublished fiction. But some of these other picks are not so great. You know, Ben Carson at Housing and Urban Development, I think, is a silly pick. But most of these picks are pretty good, and he just added three yesterday that are quite good. One of them is Scott Pruitt at the EPA. Another is General John Kelly at Homeland Security. And the third is Andy Puzder. He announced that one this morning as Secretary of Labor. So Pruitt is the most controversial pick and also the best. He says, he's a guy who has said in the Wall Street Journal that the debate, or I think it's National Review, the debate is far from settled on climate change. He said, quote, scientists continue to disagree about the degree and extent of global warming and its connections to the actions of mankind. 
which is true. Even if you believe that climate change is man-caused, that doesn't necessarily explain to what extent it's man-caused. doesn't explain how you're going to fix that. The biggest problem with the climate change argument is that you sort of have to have a solution to it, and nobody on the left has a solution other than living 19th century standards of living, and that's unworkable. Pruitt's been an outspoken opponent of EPA overregulation. He sued the EPA before, and now he's going to head it up, all of which led Dan Pfeiffer, who is an Obama advisor, to tweet this, which is a great indicator. He said, at the risk of being dramatic, Scott Pruitt at EPA is an existential threat to the planet. At the risk of being dramatic? Well, don't overstate it, boy. Uh, an existential threat to the planet is like Zod, or the Death Star, Scott Pruitt of the Death Star. You always knew that the guy who was going to destroy Earth was going to be a guy named Scott. You just knew that was coming. So it's just, again, the, the, the fact that the left is going nuts over this, it's a great pick. Scott Pruitt's a really good pick. Then there is John Kelly. So Kelly has linked the danger of terrorism to the loose coverage of the southern border. So he says that it's more of a, the, the reason to police the southern border is much less about the economy and much more about terrorism. He served, obviously, with distinction in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a gold star father. He's run U.S. Southern Command for years, working with countries south of the border. He will be a far cry from soft foreign policy notions of the Obama administration. Uh, there, there are questions for people whether he's going to be as hard on illegal immigration unrelated to terrorism, but there's not a lot of indicators he's going to be soft on illegal immigration. Then finally today, Trump also named, uh, Trump also named uh, this uh, labor secretary, a guy named Andy Puzder. So you've heard of him because he's been in the news before. He's the longtime CEO of CKE Restaurants, which is Hardee's and Carl's Jr., and he understands how economics works, and the left is losing their mind because he's not going to cave to the labor unions. He spent his entire career saying to the labor unions, guys, you can protest as much as you want, but flipping a burger... Flipping a burger is not exactly a job that requires a $20 an hour salary. And you can pretend that's not the case, but we'll just end up building machines that can do it for less. Uh, this is the sort of stuff that really, really ticks off the left, and that's why he's a really good pick. Uh, here is, here's a little clip of, uh, of, of Labor Secretary or Prospective Labor Secretary Puzder. They absolutely, they call it, the, the policy guys call it the welfare cliff, because you get to a point where if you make a few more dollars, you actually lose thousands of dollars in benefits. Right. And quite honestly, these benefits are essential for some people. They're how they pay the rent. They're how they feed their kids. Sure. So what, what happens is we have people who turn down promotions, or if minimum wage goes up, they want fewer hours, they want less hours, because they're afraid they'll go over that cliff. Sure. And we really make the distance between dependence and independence too broad to gap. Instead of these handouts, there's something called the earned income tax credit, which actually could help people better than any of this stuff. Yeah, it's already lifted millions of people out of poverty. And it, what it is basically is right now it's an annual check. It should be a monthly or maybe a biweekly check, but it's a government supplement. So you don't end up in all these complex programs. You know, they're difficult to satisfy. People have to figure them out. Sure. They have different standards, different requirements. This would put everything into, into one pot where people who would get a check. Mm -hmm. And as your income increases, your supplement would decrease. But sure. it never decreases so much that your income, your overall income, declines. Okay, so uh, I'm not a big fan of the earned income tax credit, but Puzder is, is very up on, on what businesses need. And that is obviously something that is necessary. So, uh, th so his cabinet picks are quite good. His cabinet picks are quite good. And in just a minute, we're going to get to the other side of the coin, which is 
you know, what, what about all the other things he's doing and which one is the true Trump? Um, but first, we have to say hello to our advertisers over Birch Gold. So if you are looking at the economy and you are concerned about uh, the future of the economy, if you look at the stock market, you think it's a little bit inflated, sure, you're optimistic about where we're going, but 20000 for the Dow uh, looks kind of high to you and you're worried maybe about tariff policy. Well, now's the time for you to go and purchase some gold over at Birch Gold Group. So birchgold.com. They're the precious metal IRA specialist. If you have an IRA or 401k, they can help move all of the all of those assets into precious metals uh, without tax consequences. They're the people that I would trust to invest in precious metals. Go to their website, birchgold.com, ask all your questions. If you do use backslash Ben, uh, then you can get a 16-page free kit that, that tells you what you need to know. And make sure to ask all your questions before you invest. And then when you're ready, invest with my friends at Birch Gold Group, A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, birchgold.com slash Ben. Well, to, as we continue here, we're going to be talking, as I say, uh, about what Trump's been doing not with the cabinet picks and how much cabinet picks matter. You have to go to dailywire.com for that, though. Plus, we have some epic things I like and things I hate today. Dailywire.com, $8 a month gets you a subscription at dailywire.com. If you're an annual subscriber, you get a free copy of my novel, uh, and I will sign it for you as well, so you can keep it, treasure it forever. You can put it under your pillow at night and, and hope the tooth fairy comes. You can do whatever you want with it. You can use it as a doorstop, but it is a pretty good book, so it's worth reading. Dailywire.com. Plus, we have a bunch of new cool things coming out. We're going to have a, a Shapiro store that's coming out uh, in just a few weeks. You're going to get big discounts for that if you're a subscriber. And it turns off the ads on our website as well. So dailywire.com to do all of that and become part of the largest podcast, conservative podcast in the United States. All righty. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, – I do have to play one more clip of somebody who's, who's supposedly being discussed as a cabinet secretary. This person's not going to be – well, two people. One of them's been picked. One of them's not going to be picked. The person who was picked is Linda McMahon for the Small Business Administration. First of all, I don't understand why we should even have a small business administration. The idea that you have a government agency giving loans to small businesses, that's what banks are for. If you can't meet the risk, the risk profile that a bank needs to lend to you, I certainly don't want to trust my money to you. And that's what taxpayer funding is through the SBA. But Linda McMahon, who's one of the people who helps create the WWE, uh, she is the new she, – she's supposed to, to head up. She's the new administrator at the SBA. Uh, people are making fun of her because obviously she was a pretty vocal part of the WWE. So, JR, on behalf of the entire McMahon family – Meet your new administrator of Small Business Administration. I have a feeling that uh, maybe some people will get kicked in the nuts. Uh, you never know. Uh, meanwhile, another another prospective cabinet pick is Dana Rohrbacher. Dana is a congressperson from California. Nice guy. Extraordinarily pro-Russian, though. Uh, and this was him being asked on, uh, I guess that he's being asked by Yahoo News uh, about, his, about Russia. And this is a person who should not be Secretary of State. Okay, okay. That, that's where I came from. 
What, what, what country did you say? I come, come from? from the former Soviet Union, from Moldova. Oh, well, that's good. And then, you, then the audience knows you're biased. I'm biased because I'm an American yeah. citizen who was born in a foreign no, country? Yeah, yeah. When you start saying that Russia should be... Is, has, you're trying, do you know that there have been no political reforms in China? None? I'm not, say, say, I'm not advocating that China be our best friend. I'm talking no, to you about you Russia said, right you now. You just said that Russia and China are the same. And I'm sorry, they I are I said not. they're both human you rights said, abusers. How am I wrong? How are you wrong? In China, they don't have an opposition. Russia isn't accused of murdering journalists. Uh, okay, look, you can. I'll let the public decide for that last comment where you're coming from. The bottom line is what's good for America is to prioritize, as I did when I worked with Ronald Reagan. I wrote most of his speeches. And what would Ronald Reagan issue. think about your thoughts? He would about love Vladimir it. Putin. He would, maybe you forgot that Ronald Reagan was the one who reached out to Gorbachev for the. Are you comparing Gorbachev to Vladimir Putin? If <laughs> you just that person should not be Secretary of State. Okay, all of this said, he probably won't be. I mean, the, right now they're saying the front runner is Romney, which would round out a very solid cabinet from President-elect Trump. So the question is, what represents Trump? The cabinet, or what he does? What he does? What he says and what he does on his Twitter feed, and when he's on TV, and when he actually does things. Now, there's two philosophies of cabinets. One is that cabinets are this team of rivals, and you hear all of them out, and it's this very highfalutin notion of what the cabinet is. And then there's the reality of cabinets. And the truth is that most cabinet officers, when's the last time you heard of a cabinet officer actually shifting the president on an issue? When's the last time that happened? Maybe Rumsfeld with regard to the Iraq war and strategy there. Maybe Kissinger with regard to Nixon's foreign policy, but you can name them on one hand. I mean, the number of truly influential cabinet secretaries is extraordinarily low because in the end, they all work for the president of the United States. Quick, name the secretary of education currently under Barack Obama. Anybody? Anybody? I don't even remember, right? Nobody cares. It used to be Arne Duncan, but it's not anymore. You know, so everybody sort of gets into this whole reality TV show mentality. Ooh, who's he going to pick for secretary of agriculture? Who's he going to pick for secretary of commerce? No one cares. Okay? In the end, the president is the person who is in charge, and they're serving at the pleasure and whim of the president. So this idea that the cabinet secretaries are going to be the best guide as to what Trump is going to be like as president, I think that's utter nonsense. Remember, this was the same argument made about Mike Pence, that Mike Pence was going to be the check on, on, on Donald Trump, that we could, don't worry, we can trust Donald Trump to be conservative because Mike Pence is sitting next to him. Now Mike Pence is just doing the mini-me with Trump, right? He's just running around parroting whatever Trump says. 35% tariffs? Sure, that's okay. I, sure, that's yes. Why not? It, it didn't used to be for TPP. Yes, but now I realize that was wrong. And he's even—it's gotten to the point where Pence is actually mirroring Trump's physical motions. Like he's—if you watch him at these events, he's now doing this, and he's doing this, and he's doing this. Right? He's actually—he's actually started to mirror Trump's routine, which is not a rip on Pence per se. It sort of is, but it is—it is, a, it is a, a rebuke to the notion that don't worry. If we just put a bunch of good, solid conservatives around Trump, that means his policy will be good, solid, and conservative. I don't buy that. I don't. I'm sorry. Mike Pence has been, again, mirroring not conservatism or, or helping to calibrate Trump's conservatism. He's been falling prey to whatever it is that Trump wants him to do. And a lot of the people who I've noticed who are really pumping up the Trump picks for the cabinet, people saying, well, don't worry about Trump. It's going to be great. The cabinet picks, they'll help guide Trump. He's looking to them for advice. These are the same people who have watched all of their principles go by the wayside so that they can support Trump doing things that they didn't want him to do six months ago, didn't want Obama to do now. You know, these are the, the idea that Trump, that Trump, who's in charge? Who's driving the bus? Is it the cabinet secretaries? Is it the people who support Trump? Or is it Trump himself? And I think you're making a big mistake if you think it's not Trump himself. I think that Trump himself drives this bus, and that means we have to look at the things he does and take them seriously. 
Now, I've noticed there's a knee-jerk reaction to any criticism of Trump these days, and that is, well, why didn't you say the same thing about Obama? And here's the thing. We did say the same thing about Obama. So here's the latest example of that. So Donald Trump, there's a union leader who, uh, who's very upset. This is the Steelworkers Union leader, uh, and his name is Chuck – what is it? Chuck Jones? Is that what his name is? Uh, in any case, he, he went on TV, and he was the union leader at Carrier. And he said that Donald Trump lied through his teeth when he said that he had saved all of these jobs. And he saved some of the jobs. We didn't save all the jobs. And he was he was lying. Here's what he had to say. So I want to ask you about that, because there's the issue here of how many jobs were saved. And you're pointing out a discrepancy there. But the whole point of what Donald Trump is trying to do, is, as you know, Chuck, right, is to say these jobs are not going to go to Mexico. He's going to stop that. He's using carrier as, you know, he's planting his flag. But you're now saying it's what, 550 jobs that are still going to Mexico even after Donald Trump's deal? That's correct. 550 jobs in uh, the Indianapolis facility, and then uh, there's a Huntington facility, and 700 jobs are uh, also going to Mexico from there. Do you want Donald Trump to do something about it? I mean, when he hears this, maybe he doesn't know this. Uh, you know, he was really well, proud he, to stop these yeah, jobs. Yeah, I know he... by now. Well, I want to say this first of all. I appreciate Mr. Trump getting involved and saving as many people's livelihoods as he did. So I don't think that can go without being said. Uh, I just wish that he'd have had the numbers down and he'd have been up front with 800 people's jobs staying here in Indianapolis because we had a lot of our members when the word was coming out of 1100, they thought uh, that they would have a job. And in order, then they find out the next day after, when that's Friday, that most likely they weren't, 550, we're still going to lose their jobs. And so he said that Trump lied his ass off. This prompted Trump, so this is on TV. 20 minutes later, Trump starts tweeting about this guy. So first of all, let's point out something. Governor Mike Pence, remember that guy who was supposed to help guide Trump? This is Governor Mike Pence of Indiana. This is just a few months ago. This is from March. He's, he, pre, he, pre, he, he posted a picture, tweeted a picture of himself with the United Steelworkers and a picture of him with Chuck Jones, the guy who's just on the TV. And he tweeted, appreciate the chance to meet with Chuck Jones and hardworking men of local 1999 about our efforts to save carrier jobs. Now here's Trump. Chuck Jones, who's president of the United Steelworkers 1999, has done a terrible job representing workers. No wonder companies flee country. And then he followed that up with, if United Steelworkers 1999 was any good, they would have kept those jobs in Indiana, spend more time working, less time talking, reduce dues. Okay, now, let me make clear. I don't like a lot of these unions. I think a lot of these unions are bargaining with other people's money. I think a lot of these unions, the dues are too high. I think a lot of the unions cut bad deals that end up bankrupting the companies with whom they're supposed to be working. I think they're far too adversarial with employers in many cases. But that's not why Trump's attacking him. Trump's attacking him because the guy had the temerity to tell the truth about how many jobs actually were shipped down to Mexico. Trump said 1,100 jobs were saved. That's not real. It was really about 800 jobs that were saved apparently, and about 300 jobs uh, were never going to move in the first place, and 550 jobs are still moving down to Mexico. This isn't unusual, okay? Donald Trump, the other day, we talked about this, he tweeted against Boeing, right? Here's what he tweeted against Boeing. He's tweeted, Boeing is building a brand new 747 Air Force One for future presidents, but costs are out of control, more than $4 billion. Cancel order. So a lot of people said, including me, smart politics, right? I mean, that's, that's him, cutting waste and fraud. Except there's not a lot of evidence that the contract itself was waste and fraud. Jonah Goldberg's written about this. He says, the projection is for two Air Force planes. The current contract with Boeing is $170 million, not $4 billion. So what exactly is this? Well, it turns out that like two hours before Trump tweeted this, 
a couple of hours before Trump tweeted this, the Chicago Tribune reported that the CEO of Boeing had criticized Trump's position on trade. Seriously. The, the, what, he, what had actually happened is that he had, he had, the, the CEO of Boeing had done some event like the prior week, and the CEO of Boeing had said that he thinks that, this, that the, the trade policy that Trump is pursuing is backwards and stupid, essentially, that he thinks that it's going to damage his business. He said uh, this – let's see if I can find the exact quote uh, from the CEO. But he, he basically said that, this, that the, the generalized trade policy doesn't make any sense uh, that, that, Trump is, that Trump is promoting. And that comes out, and like literally an hour later, Trump is tweeting about Boeing, and that, of course, sends the stock tumbling for Boeing. This is not good stuff, folks. This is not how government is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be somebody disagrees with you on philosophy and now use the government to target them. You're not supposed to do that. I do remember when Barack Obama used the IRS to target conservative nonprofits, and we all lost our minds, as rightly we should have, and demanded that IRS officials be fired and prosecuted. And I remember when Barack Obama was attacking individuals on the right, attacking Rush Limbaugh, attacking Sean Hannity, attacking Fox News, and people on the right went nuts. In fact, just to prove how consistent I am, here's a clip from 2013. Barack Obama had just attacked Fox News, and here's me on Fox News talking about it. Okay, what do you think of the president's quote there on uh, Fox News and Rush Limbaugh? He's an imperial president, and he has dictatorial tendencies. I mean, the fact is that what he actually said in the rest of that quote is he talks about how the incentive structure needs to be changed. How exactly are you going to change that incentive structure? I mean, he's right. talking about silencing members of the media that he doesn't like. And he's done this before. I mean, he, he's put this freeze on Fox News for years. This idea that Fox News is some sort of evil force in the media. He's gone after Rush Limbaugh. He's attempted to start secondary boycotts of Rush Limbaugh in conjunction with groups like Media Matters. This is what he does. He's a bully. You know, uh, he just wants the media. He want, and Fox News is, is challenging the president and his policies, and that's what the media is supposed to do. Essentially what he's saying is the media just not liberal enough. Well, yeah, I think he wants more than a media pass. I think he wants people who don't like him to to be quiet. Because the fact is this, Fox News has never had a warm relationship, I would say, with, with the Obama administration, at least not uh, from the perspective of the Obama administration. They've been trotting out spokespeople for years saying Fox News is an illegitimate news source. This right. goes all the way back to the very beginning. Uh, and, and what he's attempting to do now, when he says change the incentive structure, that should be scary language for any American who believes in the First Amendment on a fundamental level. Okay, so I was ripping Obama up over doing the exact same thing years ago. So all I'm saying is that if our guy does it now, that doesn't make it okay. I specifically mentioned Russia in this context. The left attempted to destroy Russia's career by targeting him and trying to and, – and, and Obama targeted Rush personally, kept mentioning Rush uh, in, in his speeches. And now Rush is saying things like this about Boeing. There's much more going on here than one little Trump tweet would indicate. I think you should use this as a little bit of a teachable moment. Trump is not the dummy. He's not the ignoramus. Basically, he says that Boeing has worked with the Clintons, and that's why Trump is going after them, and he's celebrating that. But – when Obama was targeting Limbaugh, it was bad. So why is it okay now? It's not okay. That's the answer. It's not okay. And it's, and it's not pleasant to watch as, as people fall into the trap of pretending it's okay. So, but but that's, not, that's a different question that we've discussed another time. The real question is, which one's the real Trump? Is it Tweety Trump? Is it the guy who goes on Twitter and blows off his steam and then uses the power of his office to do things? Or is it Cabinet Trump? Right, so Trump has economic advisors, right? He's, he already appointed a guy he wants to be Secretary of the Treasury. Was Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, present at any of the meetings with SoftBank, for instance? And the answer is no. He wasn't present at any of the meetings with SoftBank, which just said that they would give $50 billion and create 50,000 jobs. It was just Trump praising SoftBank for doing nice things for him. Here's Trump tweeting about SoftBank. He said, Masa, this is Masayushi son, who's the, the head of, of SoftBank, said he would never do this had we, Trump, not won the election. And he also tweeted, 
Masa, SoftBank of Japan, has agreed to invest $50 billion in the U.S. toward businesses and 50,000 new jobs. Right? This, is, this is how Trump, I think this is much more indicative of how Trump is going to run policy. And here's the thing. Everybody else thinks this is true, too. Everybody in business thinks this is true, too. So the head of U.S. Steel says, we might bring 10,000 jobs back to the United States because of Trump. You know, here's what he had to say about it, and then I'll tell you the real story here. I have not felt an environment of positive optimism where forces are converging to provide for a better environment uh, in, in quite a while. And this is pretty widespread. Customers, suppliers, um, you know, throughout the communities. Only in the United States? Are you seeing the same sort of optimism in Europe or it's sort of a different it's economic mostly the, it's, it's the United States. The United States is a special place. Are your employees more optimistic? Absolutely. And I'm, I'd be more than happy to bring back the employees that we were forced to lay off during that depressive you years. Would. How many jobs Absolutely. is that? It's, it could be close to 10,000. 10,000 jobs. Yes. Has, has Mr. Trump called you? Have you talked to the, the new incoming administration in any capacity? Not yet. We've talked before, and, I, and we have plenty of input that has been given throughout the campaign to, to refer to the things that really will be making a difference. Okay, so what exactly is he so excited about? Why did the stock jump tremendously for, for U.S. Steel yesterday? It, it isn't because of free market stuff, gang. I mean, he, he actually said this. There's an article in CNBC where he said this. He, he thinks that Trump is going to put tariffs on steel. He thinks, that, he thinks that Trump is going to do exactly what George W. Bush did and something Republicans objected to back in 2003. And he thinks that he's going to tariff steel, and he thinks that Trump is going to subsidize U.S. Steel. That's what he thinks. He thinks that Trump is going to subsidize U.S. Steel with all sorts of giant infrastructure boondoggles and U.S. Steel will be able to make a fortune. Again, the point here is that this is actually how Trump's going to do business. Trump, I don't think, is going to operate just through his secretaries. I don't think you're ever going to hear from Betsy DeVos again, the Secretary of Education. If you do, maybe she'll do some good stuff, but it's going to be you know, sort of in the background. Most of the stuff Trump's going to be doing, most of the stuff that's going to have major impact on policy is not going to be done by a lot of these secretaries. Most of it is going to be done by Trump at the top level, or at least the controversial stuff will be done by Trump at top level. I think best we can hope for is that the cabinet picks will do a lot of the hard slogging on-the-ground work that we never hear about, but that makes our life better in subtle ways. And then Trump is going to be just as erratic as he ever is. That's, that's I think, the symbiotic position here. But uh, if, if you're asking me which one is the truer Trump, cabinet Trump or Trump on Twitter and Trump you know, doing these deal-by-deal -deal basis routines, I think that it's it's the latter. I think that it's it's pretty clearly the Twitter cutting deals personally routine. By the way, this does have a pretty major impact. Look at the, the this is this is just scary stuff. Here are a couple of polls uh, that are that are demonstrative of how Trump has, has shifted thinking among Republicans. This is an insane poll. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? Quote: The free market has been sorting the economy out, and America has been losing. Okay, free market people think America wins from the free market. 57% of Republicans, 57% of Republicans agree the free market has been sorting the economy out and America's been losing. Vaha. Okay, only 38% of independents believe that, 33% of Democrats. Uh, and, uh, and then there, there's more where that came from. Uh, here's, here's another set of statistics. According to 69% of Republicans, it is fine for the president and vice president to directly negotiate with private businesses. Okay, there's so much for the rule of law. 78% of Republicans, nearly 8 in 10, think it's okay to offer tax breaks or incentives to individual companies to keep jobs in the United States. That's called bribery. 71% of Republicans say that the government offering co contracts to individual companies to keep them in the U.S. is fine. That's called stimulus. We didn't like it when it was Obama. And what is the 75% of Republicans say that, that it's okay for the president to negotiate with individual private companies on a case-by-case -case basis. Again, no rule of law there. So what we're looking at is a giant soul suck inside the, the Republican Party. People in embracing positions they never would have because there's this 
unjustified level of trust in Trump. Now, that doesn't mean that Trump is going to do terrible things. It just means that you shouldn't trust any politician. I, 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 honest, honest to goodness, I do not understand the perspective of human beings who spend their entire life saying you can't trust politicians, and then you trust the politician. I don't get it. You should not trust politicians. Politicians are not worthy of your trust. You have to be the check on them. The minute that you start saying all of the policies the politician says are good because you like the politician, that's no longer an argument about whether to have a limited government free country. That's now an argument about which tyrant's going to rule. If it's our tyrant, we'll like it when he's tyrannical. If it's their tyrant, we won't like it when they're tyrannical. And that's dangerous stuff. That's dangerous stuff. Okay, meanwhile, the Democrats clearly have no clue how to deal with the fact that they lost this election. And, and they're just doubling down on their, the accusations that they keep throwing out there that the country is deeply racist. Barack Obama uh, did, a, did a, an interview with Fareed Zakaria on uh, or Fareed Zakaria, Fareed Zakaria, whatever it is, he, on, on CNN. And, uh, and he basically said the reason that, that Americans turned against him is because they hate black people. There are people who dislike me because they think I'm a liberal. The president doesn't see racism in mainstream opposition to him, but he does see it on the fringes. I think there's a reason why attitudes about my presidency among whites in northern states are very different from whites in southern states. So you know, are, are, are there folks who, whose primary concern about me has been that I seem foreign, the other? Uh, are, are those who champion the birther movement? <laughs> you know, feeding off of uh, bias. Absolutely. Okay, so again, I love the ominous music in the background. Yeah, way to win back those white, blue-collar workers in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Call them all a bunch of racists. That seems like a real smart strategy there. By the way, I love that he says that there's a difference between how northern whites view them and southern whites view them. It's not even true, statistically speaking. It isn't true, statistically speaking. There's a di- the, the actual gap in the vote in this election cycle was along urban versus rural lines. In urban areas, 59% voted for Clinton. In rural areas, 62% voted for Trump. And it's along educational lines. Voters in the 50 counties with the highest percentage of college degrees voted for Clinton by a margin of 26%. In the lowest 50 counties in terms of education, they voted for Trump by 31%. And by the way, this notion that, that Southern whites are just giant racists, but Northern whites are, are just wonderful people, that's not borne out by fact either. Okay, this is something that Gallup found in 2013. This is from Gallup 2013. They did polling about racial attitudes and racial treatment in, in all the regions of the country. And here's what they found. Quote, the South, a part of the country that, would not, that one would not historically associate with racial harmony, does not actually fare as poorly as some other parts of the United States in terms of race and ethnic relations or racial and ethnic integration. The South may no longer trail the rest of the country when it comes to specific measures of residential integration and of attitudes toward black-white relations. In other words, this perspective he's trying to put out there that the reason that that southern white people that that white people don't like him is because all a bunch of southern crackers who hate him it's not true but the democrats have to keep doubling down on their identity politics they just keep doubling down on their identity politics now the irony is that given trump's actual program the democrats have a pretty good lever here right all the democrats have to do is come in and say you see what trump's doing we're going to do more of it you see all this infrastructure stuff we want to double that you see all of the giveaways that he's giving the business to keep the business here, all the trade deals he's blowing up? We want to do all of that except times two. Is there precedent for that? You bet there's precedent for that. That's exactly what FDR did. Herbert Hoover was a terrible president, and one of the reasons he was a terrible president is because he enacted all of the policies that FDR did except in softer fashion. Then FDR came along and said, hey, look at that. That failed. Let's do a lot more of that. And then he, of course, wins four consecutive terms in record fashion. You could see the same thing happening here if Democrats had a brain in their head. They don't. And so instead, they're just going to keep calling voters racist. 
So Valerie Jarrett, she says, the only reason that the GOP opposed Obama's stimulus was because they're a bunch of racists. Their desire to stop him was also going to have devastating consequences for the American people. And why? Or was it some of it race? Or was it the politics? Or was it power? Okay, maybe it was because the stimulus package did nothing. Maybe because it was a, a waste of $800 billion. And we thought that was bad policy. Right now, she, now she's coming back about this. She says, well, why are you for Trump's? And the answer is because people are follow the leader, which is an unfortunate tendency. But again, the entire Democratic Party, the upper echelon, they keep doubling down on this identity politics, and it's very stupid. Again, Trump's, Trump's an opening for them, and they don't even see it. Here's David Axelrod again saying the American people are a bunch of racists. Did race play a role in the brick wall of Republican resistance to Barack Obama? It's an indisputable that there was a uh, ferocity to the opposition and a lack of respect to him that uh, was a function of race. Oh, really? Really? I, I seem to recall us impeaching Bill Clinton, like impeaching him, throwing him out of his job. What a bunch of horse crap. I mean, just a real horseman or butt. They're going to keep doubling down on this because they think the way they're going to win elections is not by winning back all the white voters that they just lost to Trump. They think the way they're going to win elections is by winning more minority voters. And uh, good for, you know, if that's the way they think they're going to win elections, I hope they keep thinking that because great. I mean, great. Let's let's watch them keep losing. By the way, speaking of things that are going to make Trump more popular, not less, uh, watch this video. There's a bunch of Mexican politicians at a Christmas party. That right there is a pinata of Trump. And these are Mexican politicians trying to beat the crap out of a, a pinata of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's definitely going to make him. Uh, I'm sure that that's just warming the hearts of all the Americans who are watching this. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Okay, time for some stuff I like and then some stuff I hate. So, things I like. Uh, I've gotten a lot of reading done because I've been on a lot of planes lately. Uh, Stephen Hayward has a new book that's out. It's called Patriotism is Not Enough. Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the Arguments that Redefined American Conservatism. Uh, it's, it's, I think, I'm not sure if it's out yet or if it's just coming out, um, but the, the book is really good. It's, it's, it's high-level stuff. I mean, this is not stuff for people who are just beginners in politics. Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns had some very sophisticated arguments on the nature of the founding. Uh, they're both students of, of a philosopher named Leo Strauss. Uh, Strauss was a big believer in, in going back to kind of root philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, uh, Greek philosophy, uh, founding philosophy, and looking for the wisdom of that when we, when we try to interpret where America should go next and what are the values that are common. He was a, his most famous book uh, is about natural right, and uh, it's a very good book. Uh, but this is, this is a pretty good explanation of some of the key debates inside the conservative movement about what patriotism constitutes. And it's a, it's a rebuttal to sort of the Trumpish notion, the faddish notion that if you just wave a flag, then that's real patriotism or, or shutting down trade, that's real patriotism, economic nationalism, that's real patriotism. This says, here's, patriotism is really about some foundational principles, here's what they are. The book is Patriotism is Not Enough, really interesting book uh, by Stephen Hayward. Okay, other things that I like. So I have to say, Van Jones, uh, I think, is wrong about everything, but Van Jones, there's an honesty to Van Jones. He's one of the few honest people on the left. He did a show last night where he was ta called The Messy Truth with Van Jones, uh, and, he, and he talked about the, the shortcomings of the parties, and he gave a pretty honest critique of the Democratic Party, I thought. We are still acting like one side is always right and the other side is always wrong. One side is grounded in truth and reason and, you know, good common sense. And the other side is insane and delusional. OK, and now both sides have been guilty of doing this. I've been personally guilty of doing this. You have probably been guilty of doing this. But look, 
This is America. At some point, we have got to do better. All right? So we're here tonight, and we're just going to try to get real. Neither side has all the answers. Nobody is perfect. And the real truth, when you get down to it, is almost always messy. For instance, let's just get messy here for a second. I think both political parties need to take a good, long look in the mirror. Because right now, they both kind of suck. Let's just be honest. Right now, both parties kind of suck. Now, I'll start with us. Let's, I'll start with us. I'm a strong Democrat. At our best, we are the champions of America's downtrodden working folks. But it's also true that some very obnoxious elitism has found a home in our party. And Democrats now have gotten so used to saying stuff like, red state voters are stupid, that we don't even get how stuck up and terrible that sounds to anybody with good sense. And that elitist attitude may have cost us the Rust Belt and this election. Okay, that's gotta stop. Now on the other hand, Republicans, y'all got problems too. Uh, at your best, you are the party of colorblind individual merit. And that sounds great. But as much as Republicans hate to admit it, some nasty strains of some bigotry and some bias, including some actually scary white supremacists, have found a home in their party. And they don't seem to want to acknowledge that or even confront okay, it in a serious I actually, I think that what Van Jones is doing, I mean, I hope the Democrats don't listen to Van Jones because what he's doing here is actually quite smart. I hope that the Democrats ignore Van Jones. What he's saying about the Democrats is exactly right. It's the elitism that people were reacting to, the political correctness, the idea that we know better than you. Uh, it's that, that's what people reacted to. I hope that the Democrats continue to ignore Van Jones, don't do any self-critique, and continue to be uh, the insane loonbags that they were during this election cycle, the kind of people who chop off six inches of their hair and dye it black in order to demonstrate how much they hate Donald Trump. Okay, time for some stuff that I hate. So, yesterday, I had to fly out of LaGuardia, and uh, I got to the airport much, much earlier than expected. And there are very few things worse in life than getting to the airport really, really early and then having to sit around as flight after flight leaves to your desired destination, but they're all booked. Uh, it's, it is not fun. Uh, so I, had to, I got there like 1.30 in the afternoon. My flight didn't leave till like 6. And so I was sitting there for four hours. And in the airport, contrary to Barack Obama's opinion, in the airport, there's only one channel that's ever in the airport, and it's CNN. And some of CNN's programming is not terrible. Right? I mean, we just showed some Van Jones. There, that was actually not bad. But some of it, I don't know why, they decided to show something called CNN Airport. It wasn't even regular CNN. It wasn't even the news. They were showing CNN Airport, and they were showing this special with a guy named W. Camu Bell. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, and he's supposed to be a comedian. It was a special about, it was called United, United Shades of America, which, uh, first of all, the name, ugh. Um, but I'm sitting there, and, I, and, it's, and, and the sound is blaring. There's no way to escape it. It's on every TV. It's like the seventh circle of hell. And I'm sitting there, and I just start tweeting this thing out, and it starts to go a little bit viral because I was very upset at this particular special because it is legitimately the worst thing I have ever seen on television. I mean, it is... Really, I'm trying. I'm, I have to think hard to come up with something worse that I've seen on television, and I'm one of the suckers who watched Joe Millionaire. Okay, this was worse than that. Here is some of W. Campbell. He, the, the premise of this is that he is a is that he is a large black comedian who goes down to Florida, and he introduces this by saying, "Florida is a state full of white people. It's the last place black people should want to go." First of all, there are lots of black people in Florida, actually. Um, but second of all, like 
the 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 disconnect. He he. Every segment starts with him doing a Seinfeld desk open in front of five people who can't find it in their hearts to laugh. It's actually a little sad. And then he's going to go down there for spring break and explain to the viewers what spring break looks like and what it's like to retire as an old person in Florida. This two groups of people who I definitely was not interested in talking to: drunk spring breakers in Florida and my grandmother. So this, so this is this is a bit of the special, and it, it is as bad as you're about to see. This is the good stuff. Between one and a half and two million students go on spring break every year, and collectively, they spend over one billion dollars on drinking, partying, and let's be honest, bail money. And no place draws in the spring breakers like the beaches and bars of Florida. I'm here in Daytona Beach for spring break. Yay. Now, I was never the spring break kind of guy. One, because I dropped out of college. And two, this whole scene always kind of made me feel queasy. You may look at this and see fun, but I see a lot of future regret. But I'm here to see what I missed out on. So I'll hold my tongue for a little while. So what's on the agenda today for your spring break good time? This is it. Yeah, this is this. I'm just beaching. Just yeah. beaching? Yeah. What does beaching mean? Just getting drunk on the beach. Oh. <laughs> I probably could have guessed that. The whole thing is like this. The whole thing is just like this, except that uh, there, there are less salacious shots of booty. So you don't even get the good scenery. It's it, then because half the show is shot in an old age home. Basically, here's the other half of the show. They go over to the, the they go over to the the old age home. Uh, it's actually a retirement community, and this is the kind of humor that I mean, it's just laugh out loud funny uh, if you have no prefrontal cortex. Here. So what? I guess I have to ask, what is it like dating at, at seventy? It's wonderful. <laughs> you look like you said, don't get into inappropriate questions. That's what that face was. That was the be careful young man face. He, he reads well. Yeah, I just, I have to ask, just because yeah. I'm curious. And you're like a, a, a newlywed couple, so I would imagine yeah. that part yeah. of being a newlywed couple is, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the part, so all that's happening? That yeah. works. Okay, all right, well, I'm glad to know that. It's so funny to me to think about we're going to the old folks' home, quote unquote, and here I am hanging out in the pool with two newlyweds, talking about romance while I straddle three noodles. You know, this is not... <laughs> We all have our good time our own ways, right? It's a wonderful life, and we still believe we have a long way to go. And then he learns deep lessons about being old and deep lessons about being young, and then he unites the old people with the young people. It is the worst show I've ever seen on television. This this particular segment ends with him saying uh, that he felt awkward because he felt like he was bleep-blocking all the old people in the pool. Oh, yes, the height of comedy. Thank you, CNN, for that. So I just wanted to, to give a shout-out to CNN for legitimately ruining my life. Thanks for, thanks for ruining my day yesterday and the day of you know, the 375,000 people who followed me on Twitter and had to watch me tweet angrily about being stuck in an airport watching that crap. Okay, so other things that, uh, other things that I hate today. Uh, there's a professor named Eli Mistel, I think. I, I don't know how this is pronounced. Uh, and this, this person is an editor of Above the Law, and uh, he says that black people should use jury nullification to break the justice system, that because the justice system is so racist, now black people should just let all black people off when they hurt white people. And this professor writes, African-Americans live in a world where the police can murder us and get away with it. Really? Do they? 
That's why, which is why thousands of black men die every year thanks to unjustified police shootings. Oh, wait, no, it's like less than a dozen in terms of unjustified. Walter Scott proved that for anyone who still had a lingering doubt, there is no justice for black people, and yet violently revolting against the system will get us nowhere. Forget that it's immoral. It won't get us anywhere. Maybe it's time for black people to use the same tool white people have been using to defy a system they do not consent to. Jury nullification. White juries regularly refuse to convict or indict cops for murder. White juries refuse to convict vigilantes who murder black children. Um, I'm not sure... Oh, is it? That's a reference to George Zimmerman. No, that that they didn't convict him because the evidence wasn't there, and Trayvon Martin wasn't a black child. Trayvon Martin was like sixteen years old, seventeen years old, and was a big dude. White juries refused to convict. And, and by the way, according to the evidence, was beating George Zimmerman's head on the pavement at the time. Doesn't make George Zimmerman any sort of Boy Scout, but I mean, there were pretty good reasons not to convict in that case. It's called reasonable doubt. White juries refused to convict other white people for property crimes. What? And then he, and then he links to Ammon Bundy. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure how many rioters have actually been convicted in all of these riots around the United States, so that's not true. White juries act like the law is just a guideline and their personal morality should be controlling. Maybe it's time minorities got in the game. Black people lucky enough to get on a jury could use that power to acquit any person charged with a crime against white men and white male institutions. So that sounds like a recipe for justice. This is why I hate social justice. I've said before, and I'll say it again. Social justice is a crock of crap. Social justice is the notion that individual justice doesn't count, that people shouldn't get what they deserve because you're a member of a, of a racial group. In order to justify that sort of stuff, you have to do what this guy's doing and lie about the idea that the criminal justice system is inherently biased against black people, and that's why some cases go wrong. I don't think that the justice system is inherently biased against white people, even though the O.J. Simpson trial happened and was clearly a miscarriage of justice. But... You know, the idea that you're going to burn down an entirely legitimate system because you don't like a couple of results uh, is really quite gross. The idea, more more importantly, forget burning down the system. I don't care about the system as much as I care about the idea that this guy's basically advocating that if a black person kills a white person, you ought to acquit them just because you're mad that Walter Scott's murderer or manslaughterer, as the case may be, uh, was, uh, was not convicted. So that, that great idea. Let's let off a bunch of murderers, because more important that we should have a bunch of black murderers free than that we should imprison as many murderers as possible. Okay, time for a little bit of Bible talk. So we'll, we'll do that, and then, we will, and then we'll wrap it up. So this week's Parsha, the, every week the Jews read a different portion of the Bible. Uh, this week's portion of the Bible is Vayetze. This is from Genesis. And uh, I was noticing it, one, of the, one of the fascinating things about Genesis is that the Jews, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they're named after Yisrael, right? Yisrael is Yaakov, is, is Jacob. Jacob's other name is Israel. Right? God renames him. Jacob is one of the least likable characters in all of the Old Testament, or for that matter, the New Testament, if you believe in the New Testament. Jacob is really unlikable. Jacob is, is uh, he, he feels like kind of a cheat sometimes. Uh, Jacob is somebody who feels like a coward a lot of the time. He's constantly running from place to place. He runs from Laban. He runs from, he runs from Esau. He's constantly running, and he's constantly complaining. And there are a couple of segments of the Bible that sort of tell us why it is that Jacob leads, he ends up being the, the, the one that the Jewish people are named after, and he's renamed after he battles himself in, in I think it's next week's Parsha, and we'll talk about that then. But at the end of his life, right before Jacob's about to die, he goes down to Egypt and he meets Joseph, right, his son. And one of the things that he says is, uh, and, and he meets Pharaoh also, and Pharaoh asks him how old he is. He's apparently astonished at how old Jacob is. And Jacob says, the years of my life have been long and, and hard, basically. He says that they've, they've been long and brutal. And it seems like kind of a whiny response until you realize that 
life is kind of long and brutal when you live in fear. And one of the problems that all human beings have, the reason Jacob's unlikable is because Jacob is the most human of all of the people in the Bible. Uh, he is extraordinarily human. He and David are probably the two most human people, uh, fully described human, human beings in the Bible. He, the, he's, he's really painted as somebody with deep ambivalence about, about God's presence in, in God's imminence, I should say, uh, in, in the universe. Not, not that he doesn't believe in God. Obviously, he does. He's conversing with God. But he's constantly doubting God's power. And, and because of that, he's constantly making deals with people. And it constantly is working out badly for him. So here is an example until God saves him. And that's sort of the lesson. It's, he keeps learning the same lesson over and over. He keeps making God promise. God keeps promising. He keeps trusting in people. And then it keeps falling apart anyway. And God has to save him. So here's an example of that. So in Genesis 28, 18, 19, uh, if you recall, Jacob has his dream with the angels going up and down the ladder. And then he wakes up and realizes that he's had a prophecy and says, And Jacob arose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had placed at his head, and he set it up as a monument, and he poured oil on top of it. And he named the place Bethel, but Luz was originally the name of the city. The reason this is a particularly important passage in the Bible uh, is because this is the first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible. When it says Bethel, it's talking about Jerusalem, uh, the the. Jewish philosophy here is that the stone that he used here, the monument, ends up becoming the foundation stone for the for the temple. And um, but but I want to make the, make a make a parallelism here, and that is that he takes the stone that he had put his head on, right, the one that allowed him to he, that he dreamed on, and he sets it up as a monument to God, and he pours oil on top of it, and this is the foundation stone of Judaism and the Jewish capital. Okay, just a couple of chapters later, same same portion. He runs into Laban, and Laban is and Laban is a brutal guy. Laban is the the father of his two wives, uh, and Laban is a, a really evil, nasty guy. We read about him in the Haggadah every every Passover. We talk about how Laban wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Laban says to Jacob, the, the, Jacob says to Laban, I left because we're afraid of you and because you're a thief. And Laban says, the daughters are my daughters, the sons are my sons, the animals are my animals, all that you see is mine. Now, what would I do to these daughters of mine today or to their children whom they have born? And so now come, let us form a covenant, you and I, and may he, be God, be a witness between me and you. Now, Laban's lying here. None of this stuff is his, right? His daughters are now Jacob's wives. The sons are Jacob's sons. The animals are Jacob's animals. But Laban is somebody who can't be trusted, and Jacob cuts a deal with him, right? Jacob cuts a deal with him to kind of a mutual, non, a mutual non-aggression pact and says, Jacob took a stone and set it up as a monument. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a pile, and they ate there by the pile. This here is, is sort of disturbing language. I mean, I was noticing it this morning because on the one hand, Jacob takes a stone and sets it up as a monument to God. And here, Jacob sets it up as a monument to a deal between human beings, a deal with somebody really bad, and then he has all of his servants and, and kinsmen set up stones, and he basically says, we can all make deals. This is the natural human tendency. This is what makes Jacob human. Jacob's, the, the, great, the great danger in, in political life, and in life generally, is that we live with people, we have to deal with people, and we have to develop trust with people, but in the end, the only thing that you can trust is God. And we're constantly getting mixed up. We're constantly setting up monuments with other people instead of setting up a monument to God. And that leads us in some pretty bad directions. It leads us to make deals with bad people. Uh, it leads us to have dealings with bad people. I mean, this whole, this whole relationship between Jacob and Laban uh, ends up basically killing one of Jacob's wives. Uh, it, ends up, it ends up killing uh, Rachel because J Rachel has stolen her, her father's idols uh, and Jacob doesn't know about it. And he says, whoever stole the idols, I hope they die, basically. And that ends up coming true. 
you have to be very careful about the people you make deals with because if, the, if you're making deals with the person as opposed to setting it up as a monument to God, I go back for a second to the other passage. It, the, the language is really interesting. It says, he set it up as a monument, he poured oil on top of it. Notice in the second one, he doesn't pour oil on top of it. He doesn't anoint it because this one is for God. The other one is not for God. It's just a monument between men. Monuments between men will fade. Monuments between men will crumble. Monuments to God won't. So build your life to be a monument to God, not a monument to other human beings. Okay, we'll be back here tomorrow because we didn't have a show yesterday. We'll do the mailbag. We'll have all sorts of fun, and we'll see what everybody's up to because there's supposed to be some more big announcements coming later today. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.